The Energy Transition Podcast takes you directly to the cutting edge of the global energy sector's shift, with a specific focus on the critical role played by oil and gas, as well as the pathways developing around a lower carbon future. Your hosts, Leslie Beyer, Energy Workforce and Technology Council CEO, and Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, are joined by Josh Lowry, president of Upright Digital. Each episode engages industry thought leaders in an exploration of market-moving trends and topics, including new technologies, ESG, capital markets, inclusion and diversity, workforce innovation, regulatory influences, and the voice of the people. Join us as the Energy Transition Podcast looks at the state of the traditional energy and oil field service sectors emerging technologies, and the path ahead in a world of lower carbon energy development. Welcome to the Energy and Transition Podcast. My name is Josh Lowry. We are coming to you from the Houston Club in downtown Houston. I am joined, uh, as usual, with the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. Dan Pickering. How are you, sir? Josh, I'm doing great. Dan, this is a little bit different podcast. We're remote today. We are not in the studios. Yes, we are recording live from... Pickering Energy Partners Capital Formation Conference, and it is—it's funky to be wearing these headsets, but um, you know you got to change it up sometimes. And, and we had a great guest that we needed to do it here, and so that's what we're going to do. We are flexible. We are flexible, I and mean, we've done these mobiles before. We, we kinda, have. We yeah. kind of feel like uh, sports guys with these on. For, first time we first podcast we did, I think we did live from Nape. That's right. February of. February of Glenn a year Stancil. ago. Yes, Glenn exactly. was our first guy. Yeah, yeah. What's new with you, Josh? I mean, a lot. You know, just normal stuff. Business is going well. Um, I've been. Uh, last time we were here, they they came out with a the Fed was trying to de- decide what they were going to do. So we had to stop the show mid show so you could figure out yes what they were doing. Yes, that was exactly. Causing some anxiety. Twenty five basis point uh, increase and in, your in, phone was blowing up mid show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, hopefully, no no crisis of the morning. Noel, today, I mean, I don't mind time stamping us a little bit. Today is uh, uh, opening day of baseball, right? So baseball is going to kick off for the summer here. This will be fun. So the audience will hear this maybe today. or They'll hear this in a month. But that's when we're recording this from, like I said, the Pickering Energy Partners Conference today. This is a fun conference. I've learned a lot. You know, what I've really realized, and audience, I want you guys to hear this. And guests, we're not going to tell who they are yet. You're going to have to wait in suspense. But I want the audience to go back and listen to some of the podcasts we've done in the last 12 to 15 months, whatever it's been. I, I went and listened to the Jim Hughes podcast this uh-huh. morning to kind of get ready. You know, that was one of our early podcasts as well. Uh-huh. And I've learned a lot in the last. Josh is feeling his oats. He's feeling smart. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I'm just saying that I think it's working. I think what, what's happening with this education process of what we're trying to do with, you know, our friends and investors and just the entire public that's listening to, I really do believe that we are educating people properly and, in, and entertaining them. I, I really was, as I listened to the Jim Hughes interview this time, I was like, well, I understand what this is now. I understand what that is. <laughs> I, and I mean, the first time I was just trying to keep up with you. And if you go back and listen to the interview, it's it's the Dan Pickering show for 30 minutes. And then I come in halfway through and I'm like, oh, my God, I forgot I was even on this podcast. <laughs> so I guess I guess what I'm saying is um, it is it's nice that we're doing this. So on that note, I'm really I've been enjoying the uh, 
the podcast a lot. I think our guest is going to enjoy it too. So why don't we just get into it before I just talk about how much I'm, I'm enjoying myself talk today. So absolutely. Um, well today we've got Michael Carney of the engine and, uh, I have to say that Michael's a podcast guest I've been chasing for a year. And so we've, we got to know each other as, uh, PEP was getting more into energy transition and, um, Michael's a person that when I talked, I felt smarter and I said, okay, we gotta, we gotta get him on the podcast. And as a native of Boston and the fact that we don't do these remotely, right? right? We don't do Which we would, by virtual, the um, but, uh, because we don't, we had to catch him in Houston and we've done it. So this is like, we, we've caught the white rhino and, uh, really pleased to have you here, Michael. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Great to be down in Houston. And you're always welcome to Boston, Dan. We're, you know, it's, Thank it's you. a good place to yes. visit in the summer. A- absolutely. <laughs> I lived there 30 years ago, and so uh, it's changed a lot, but it's always great to come back. Um, so, Michael, we, we always love to start but with a little bit about our guest. So tell us who you are and what you're about. Yeah, well, so um, I'm a partner at The Engine, uh, which is a venture capital firm based in Cambridge, Massachusetts that funds the translation of breakthrough science and engineering. And and we were spun up by MIT, founded about six years ago, and I do a lot of work in our climate practice, um, funding next generation technologies that can help us in the energy transition. Um, But my background is kind of idiosyncratic. I... I, um, going, uh, my, I was educated at MIT, did my master's first in engineering, and then a PhD in economics, um, which is a weird two-sided brain problem that <laughs> I have uh, to, as I think about the energy transition. Right. Uh, makes it actually quite difficult if you think about it with both hats on. Um, and then I was an entrepreneur for a while. I started a, a battery company for grid-scale energy storage um, helped launch a, a company's called Ambry, and I led business mm-hmm. development there. This was in the early days of um, the kind of, uh, it was 2010, so energy storage as an asset on the grid was actually not really anything that was real. Uh-huh. Um, and so, and there were no markets, so we had to start out by creating those markets and getting getting that done. It was a really fun experience. Came back to the engine to help more founders who were doing that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, I think interesting, I got into this space, um, my family background, actually. Um, So I grew up in Washington, D.C. Both of my parents had been in the kind of government work on the energy side. And then my dad actually um, was started a company to take advantage of the um, deregulated uh, competitive electricity markets. Oh, yeah. um, Mm -hmm. Company, And I was a young kid, right? So I had no idea what any of that meant. And probably didn't have any idea what that meant until I got into the electricity industry. Right. Um, and uh, it's been it's been super interesting. My my father passed away when I was young. Mm-hmm. I was I was twelve, and then I found myself like in that industry, getting to know exactly like what he was doing. And mm. I, I, I it was a really cool process of getting to know him better yeah. because I was in the industry. Okay. And then um, that was I actually had been in D.C. I, I worked on the Hill. Um, and in 2007, during the Energy Independence and Security Act, when that passed, uh-huh. and it was that it was pretty formative for me to realize, like, okay, all of the energy industry it basically comes down to 
technology, policy, and economics. You have to you have to be able to do all three of those things in order to understand the way things are going to move forward. Um, and that was as a student when I was there. And so that kind of reframed the way I approached my professional career when I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. Uh, sent me to, on a path to MIT, to entrepreneurship, and then to yeah. the engine. You've got to – so we need to call you Dr. Michael. No, please. No, Not that's all Michael. good. Dr. Good. Michael. I, that's amazing, really, to have the public policy aspect in there, too. I mean, even if it was early in your stages, I would imagine that just seeing the importance of getting the buy-in from you – know, All different stakeholders. Exactly and correct. All, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, I mean, I think that is one of the things where the, on the early stage kind of world that I live in today mm-hmm. – historically has not engaged on that front. Right. Um, and at our detriment, um, not being able to like move coalitions of people and voters and thought leaders to progress because um, just because there are other pressures they have to deal with that are more pertinent on a day-to-day basis. But this is really where the frameworks for the industries are built. Um, mm-hmm. And so that engagement is necessary. At the engine, we actually have a government practice where we support our companies to try to try to not replace that function, but help them start to think about it at the early days. Okay. Sure. And, and I'd, I would assume, given, given they are early stage companies, it's a luxury. You're, you're loving, if they're thinking about policy, you're loving it because they've gotten past technology breakthroughs and they've, they've started to commercialize things and now all of a sudden this yeah. matters. Yeah. Yeah, I think for these companies, it, you can't wait. Right. So you've got a, the way I think about it, if you are um, new, a new generation resource or an energy storage resource or chemical production innovation of some kind, all of the, you are innovating into an industry where there's regulation mm-hmm. and you have to know what, A, you have to know what those regulations are. Can you compete in that, in that framework that uh-huh. exists. And if not, you got to go out and you got to be working to change it. So you've got technology risk that these companies have. You've got market risk. Like, are, is there a buyer and how big is that uh-huh. market? You have scale-up risk with process development, manufacturing, and then you have regulatory risk. And the challenge with these companies, which is, I think, what makes them different than what you see a lot out in Silicon Valley. And we can, we can hit on this a little bit where you've got a tech, like I think of like Instagram, (coughs) Instagram was like the big question that they had to run was, do people want to share their pictures with the world? That was the question. Turns out the answer was yes. (laughs) Right. And they sold for a billion dollars. Overshare. Overshare now. Hey, you said it. I didn't. Um, but I, I love Instagram. Look, don't, don't, I'm not jumping in that crowd. I'm on it. I'm on but, the, but that's what it was. That was the experiment they had to run. That was it. We had the technology. It was all there. It's all fine. It's actually really easy to do from a capital perspective and engagement with customers, et cetera. What these companies have to do is they got to do that experiment across four dimensions and they got to do those things simultaneously. And that de-risking, it just changes the way you capitalize the companies. It changes the way they have to like sit, the stage gate their milestones. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, for me, that's super fun. Yeah. Right. The scale of what you just mentioned, though, it's it's almost impossible for a founder of what the, the big thinking guy or girl has to come up with. I mean, can they do all? They really can't do all of that and create yeah. the next, I mean, to kind of make a funny joke, the cold fusion, right, from uh, the, the movie of the 90s. Like, you have to focus on what you're really good at. So they're, they're going to need somebody that understands the four baskets you've just described there. Yeah, so and there's two ways that we look at that because mm-hmm. we're making we are writing at the engine. We write very early checks into these companies, oftentimes before 
in, into a group of founders, right? Just the founders. And so on that dimension, we look for basically two things. One is how exceptional are these people and can they grow mm -hmm. into the, to, to, to do those things? Mm -hmm. One, to, cause they oftentimes don't have that experience and that's totally fine. So you either are growing into it or you are able to recruit into it. And that's a different skill being able to sell your vision to be able to bring in people who have done it before and know the regulatory frameworks and know how to get something permitted and know, you know, where to find process engineers. And, um, and, and so it takes a combination of both of those two things. I think. Mm -hmm. Let's, so the engineer in me is saying, man, we've jumped ahead. We're, yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's, let's step back. Right. So welcome to doing a podcast with me. Bye. Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> that's perfectly. That's excellent. okay. That's okay. No, no, no. But, but so the engine, you guys sit in Boston and, uh, but, but, uh, out of MIT, is it, are you funding only companies that come out of MIT right. and, and, and their founders? So this is like the first money that these companies are getting. Yeah. Oftentimes. So to answer your, correct, your question directly, we are not exclusive to MIT okay. in, in our portfolio. Gotcha. We were launched by MIT because MI, the president of MIT, Raphael Reif, noted that we were doing so much great work in the university. Uh -huh. We were pushing the boundaries of science and engineering and everything, but it, MIT's mission is one of global impact. And what he was frustrated with was, these innovations were the, the inventions were not translating to impact. They were staying in the labs. They were being written up in papers and sometimes patented, but like they weren't moving out. Pretty academic. Yeah, it was. It was. It wasn't translating to impact. And as a result, there's a couple reasons for that. Actually, there's many reasons for that, um, and we can touch on them. I think first is the risk tolerance of the investment community for these types of things in 2015, 16 was really low, uh -huh. right? And so there was a lack of capital and there's a lack of capital because these th things take longer to develop. Um, the experimentation cadences don't align with the kind of de-risking capital that existed. Um, and then uh, I, I think important to say there's, there's a handful of other kind of issues around the incentives of academia uh -huh. And to get to tenure and then not so much to commercialize. In some cases, like professors are actually discouraged from commercializing their research. Um, and, and so unwinding that challenge was on the, on the mind of Raphael Rafe. And he set up the engine um, to, to, with the mission of facilitating that translation of those ideas into commercial reality and impact. We do that in in a few ways. Um, obviously, we have a venture fund, okay. right? So that's that's part one. Um, our venture fund looks a little different than other funds. So we have an 18 year, a, a longer time horizon to return capital to our LPs. Okay. Um, and so you, when 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 you've brought in outside capital, you tell them it's going to be a 20 year thing. It's going to be yeah. It's a it's a long game. Uh -huh. We are looking for we are going to change the world, but it's going to take time to do that. And things that matter take time. So that's part one. Part two is we operate 250,000 square feet of lab space in the Cambridge area. That's, so that's bio lab, chem lab, machine shops, imaging equipment, um, and uh, fabrication space where these companies can come in and begin to do their first set of commercial experiments uh -huh. um, and so, scale up so the So the engine owns that. 
the so so the engine operates it. It operates. And so okay. the MIT owns the building. Okay. And so they've made an investment in this space uh-huh. to um, help translate these technologies. And then the third thing that we do is we try to put the set of stakeholders around these companies that they need to be successful. So there's government, there's marketing, there's communications, there's HR and talent um, and corporate development, right? All those things. We try to, we try to bring in a community so that these companies can flourish. And I think, and and those resources are supported by the engine, not the companies themselves. So the companies don't pay for that. The Correct. Engines Correct. That. We're okay. doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and like I said earlier, it's not to replace those functions. It's to get them off the ground, yep. right? To help. And um, when I was at Ambry, I lived. So I was particularly your startup. Yeah, my yeah. startup back mm-hmm. in 2010. I lived the the this particular challenge, which was we spent. I mean, a lot of money, and probably is I think like 25 percent of our first round of funding, mm-hmm. and. Um, a whole year of time just to build out a lab where we could replicate the results that had been achieved on campus. Uh-huh. That is yeah. effectively a waste of money right. and time, like sh- straight up. And, and so the engine is situated so that these teams, they, they create something, boom, they're over and they're starting yeah. to do work, new work moving forward. So just so I can understand this, and you, uh, you may have said it already, but – Going back to, we were talking off camera on some of these earlier podcasts, and we had, we had a guest earlier in our time, um, and he mentioned something where the, there's a lot of change that happens in the, the next 10% of the climate, uh, the, well, the energy transition, right? There's a lot of changes that are going to happen. And then he says the last 10% getting to those solutions is very difficult, right? It, it's a lot of nuance to that. But, and, he said, those are people that are looking at long-term solutions. That those are out there. He, said, he goes, their fund is working on what can we do right now in, in you know, live action stuff. And I'm, I think I'm hearing that from you. But at the same time, you're talking about 15 to 20-year horizons for people. I mean, where do you – am I – So I think that there's a couple things going on okay. there. One, one, on the investment horizon okay. for an early-stage investor – we're investing in the first the the first instance of this company, right? And so think this is um, this is like making an investment in Tesla in the early 2000s, right? So yeah, the return on that investment could take that long. That doesn't mean that the impact from that company is going to take that okay. long, right? And so that's the thing that we're we are trying to accelerate their impact. Got it. For sure, it, we're not investing like most of our companies are pre-commercial, right? And so. Um, Pre-commercial, meaning no revenues, no profits. Correct. Yep. Yeah, exactly right. So, and, and will be for a couple of years, uh-huh. right? Um, because it takes some time to get up to scale where you can actually deploy these technologies. Um, but I think that conditional on, on everything working, being able to make an impact in the decade is very reasonable. Got it. Yeah. Okay. I, I, would, I think that that question, though, around like where are we in the transition and where does the portfolio fit – um, I think there's two things that need to happen in this decade, right? I mean, for sure today, there's a whole bunch of deployment of known technologies that exist and are ready to go that needs to happen today. Mm-hmm. Like that, and, and those projects are Impact. super lup- lucrative and the markets are, are large and they should be deployed, right? So, so examples would be wind and solar? So there's a whole wind, solar, or energy storage um, on the electricity side. Yep. I think um, renewable fuels, um, renewable renewable gas. Like there's a bunch of ways to 
begin to make a dent into the carbon emissions problem right. um, that needs to need to be need to put be put out there. Uh-huh. Um, simultaneously, we've got to be making the investments in the technologies that we're going to need to deploy at scale in the 2030s. And I think and so there's this awkward and unnecessary tension between those two things. Like we don't need to choose. Like we should be doing both. Um, and the 20 to 30s to 2040. I mean, I think I go back to the quote from your prior guest. Yeah, I, the set of solutions for that that get us to deep decarbonization are not ready yet. Right. And and maybe um, you know I think we are at risk if we don't make those investments today that we won't be able to actually deploy massive capital in that time horizon to do what we need to do. Uh-huh. So. Let's let, tell us about a couple of your companies because one of the yeah. best ways to yeah. understand what you're right. doing is to know what you've invested in and what are they doing. Great, so great. Pick a few. Yeah. So, and, like and I for, said and before, for our listeners, www.engine.xyz. So as you're talking, they can be clicking up and pulling up some of these portfolio companies. So yeah, that's our whole portfolios there, and yeah. there, and we love them all. I don't have favorites. Yep. Um, the uh, as you were look at Dan just taking the show interactive. That's I know he. There are two screen ex- there are two screen experiences just started. <laughs> um, so there are. Um, so you asked about do we only invest in MIT, and, yeah. and the answer to that is no. And and most of our investments are in the broader Massachusetts region. I okay. would say um, many are out of MIT. We've some are out of Harvard, Tufts, local the local ecosystem there. We also have two companies down here in Houston. Um, Syzygy Plasmonics, uh, doing uh, photocatalytic reactors for chemical synthesis, um, and really exciting company. Um, and Quays, which is a geothermal drilling company, uh-huh. um, also a really, really, uh, I think, ambitious uh, yeah. approach to geothermal, trying to get deeper into the Earth's crust to extract more heat. Um, so those two are down here, and, and that is why I have the privilege of coming down to Houston right. on occasion and happy and get to see the ecosystem here, which has been really great because I think that the partnerships between the, this community, and we'll get to it, and, yeah. and ours back home is really important going forward. A couple companies that I work with very closely um, are, so Veer. Um, Veer is developing a new transmission technology transmission of of electricity mm-hmm. um and so leveraging i'm gonna so just to to, to get a little scientific leveraging high oh, temperature here comes the doctor <laughs> sorry here comes the doctor <laughs> okay <laughs> high temperature superconducting cable um which can basically take five times the amount of power mm-hmm. and run it through the same infrastructure so in the energy transition of the next decade and the decade after that we need to basically yeah, depending on your on, on what report you read, it's like triple or quadruple the amount of electrical infrastructure we have in this right. country. Um, and the problem is you can't do that because permitting new transmission lines is basically impossible. Um, and so we need to find ways to re-energize the existing infrastructure, and, uh-huh. and Veer has a solution for doing exactly that. So there's a study out of Princeton, or one of the kind of decarbonization studies uh, in Jesse Jenkins' lab, where he was like, basically, if we can't solve transmission, mm-hmm. 80% of the projected benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act in the electricity system go to zero. Just because you can't get it there? Because you cannot expand the grid. Uh-huh. So just so I'm clear, you're talking about using existing electricity towers with different... Different pole, like lines. I mean, it's essentially, just for the layman here, you're talking like fiber 
lines that, I mean, for the internet, right, versus a, a cable or a copper. It's a really good analogy. Okay. Exactly okay. right. You same, just get same so much. Same type of size. Yep. It just, okay. It's going to look the same, it's good, but you can run much more power through it at okay. low voltage. Um, and that See, is, that seems like a great idea. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay. <laughs> Amazingly I believe enough, it is. they've invested in that. <laughs> I mean, that does. That seems like a very solvable issue, and you're like, this works. We've already have the infrastructure. Let's move some power. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And See, so I love that. Uh, that. That that's a really exciting one. See, um, real quick here. This is the this is my problem with people that put. I get a lot. Of, I'm an, I'm an oil and gas guy by my my training. I know that we'll talk about that here in a minute. And when we started this podcast, Energy and Transition podcast, you know, I got a lot of pushback from my friends. Like, what are you doing? You know, what is this? You're, you're selling windmills now. I'm like, chill out, man. This is there's a lot to this. You need to understand what's what we're really doing here. And like, this is a this, what you just said to me, or, the, you know, to the audience, is an example of something that is very simple, that makes everybody's life better, that will, you know, they, they're obviously, people are ignoring what's really going on with population growth and just movement, et cetera, where a, this is a energy transition piece that people will never associate with energy transition, in my opinion, right? They don't really, they think it's some green i mean uh, an mit guy coming out and saying i'm with energy and transition they would never give you two seconds to actually listen to that type of idea and product if you will that any that I, i'm sorry to just jump no, on such I, a simple idea you. but that is so simple there L let me let me say though it is a simple idea but it can't be simple or somebody would have done it so what's the what's the True. juice here i mean is is this something superconduction sounds or superconducting sounds yeah so I, what is the challenge yeah uh so i'm gonna, i'll address that i also want to get back to the kind of i would say the like the conversation of transition in general okay. for sure um on on high temperature superconducting cable so there have been a few iterations of this in in efforts around uh in the u.s um I mean, the key challenge with it is these things need to be cooled down over a long distance okay. uh, so that you don't lose a lot of power over, over that distance. Okay. And, and when you say high temperature, that's – what does high temperature mean? 500 well, degrees? They, they operate at – yeah, uh, uh, in Kelvin. Okay. <laughs> so it's on a uh -oh. different scale. Uh -oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I didn't – so I don't know what the conversion would be, but it's hot, right? Yeah. And, and 8,000 you, you don't You don't want to lose that over over mm -hmm. over – because that's just the economics don't work, and everything comes down to economics. So um, what the company's done is they actually have a novel cooling system that runs along the line, fully insulates the line, and keeps all the power inside. Okay. So you don't lose that heat. Mm -hmm. is, it, is it commercial? Can it compete with traditional electricity distribution yeah. at this point? Or when, when will it? So talk to us about this time. Yeah, so I think that um, for this company, the... So the economics are yep. you have basically the same material, like going through on the line. You have a little bit of um, – so HTS cable um, and copper actually are both kind of, you know, reasonably priced, not, not such a big deal. But if you think about the economics, you're powering – you're sending five times the amount of power through the same line, mm -hmm. which that means that your per-mile transport cost of electricity – could be basically 20%. Yeah, cut by 80%. Yeah. yeah. So that is that's the economic mm -hmm. trade-off. So what you need to do is then then you cool over that line, make sure you're not losing that power. If you can do that, the economics are are clear as day. Okay. And so I would assume the utilities are all over this. This is a good so thing. So they they have yes, and so this is an example. They have a partnership with National Grid. 
Okay. Um, which is wonderful. They've uh, with a few demos built into that, um, and uh, I think the next set. So from a timeline perspective, in the next three four years, you have your first actual high voltage power or, or yeah, relatively high voltage power line, um, and deployed. Um, and then from there, you are, you know, I think the market approach, looking at lots of different ways to get in. Um, really high congest congestion zones um, and ultimately it's about long distance transmission but right. I think the go to market will be you got to find those niches where you can deploy maybe a, a kilometer or a mile that just adds a ton of value to the grid. So, so help us understand the engines dynamics here so you put the first money into this company um, I would assume that over three or four years as you said this becomes a more co a commercial product um, how much more money do you have to put yeah. in? Will other investors come in? Yeah. How does how does so, that model work? So this one's an interesting. Uh, it, it's we did we were part of a, a group of investors that that um, invested in the Series A. Okay. Um, including Breakthrough Energy Ventures and um, a few a few others that that participated as well to get this thing off the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and the. This is going to be a highly capital-intensive business. Um, eventually, because you got to make the wires, and you're selling wires. Oh, you're selling yeah. wires, exactly right, and and you're selling hundreds and hundreds of miles of wires, mm -hmm. right? And so, how it gets capitalized over time, it's going to be equity dollars up front, um, and uh, you know we'll see what those raises look like yep. um, to to come. Uh, but I, it's going to look a little different than your traditional software. Right. Um, yeah, and then you know, at some point, they're going to be able to finance um, the kind of projects with project finance and debt uh -huh. and other structures. Um, that's when they they've really demonstrated their value right. um, and the lifespan of the technology and everything like that. Basically, um, once the, once it they get into the field, I think that'll be that type of capital will come in and okay. ease the burden on the equity side. I go back to just having the audience reference a couple earlier podcasts. The guy says basically, you know, people don't understand the actual cost of infrastructure and the American grid. Uh, it doesn't take five or $10 million. It takes hundreds of millions of dollars, the scale of which, you know, yeah. you just have billions. To, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So just, you know, if your audience wants to hear more, I would go back and reference some of those because you're not talking about small dollars That's yeah. correct. to implement yeah. this. Yeah. But, the 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 thing that's exciting to us is you know once they get into the grid and they demonstrate that value proposition huge value huge value massive business yeah. Yeah. nice um and and i think that's that's what is why we are excited and is that how you guys choose you the engine is that how you choose where what what areas to focus? Is it that total addressable market? You know the infamous TAM that that we hear in yeah. energy transition so often. Is it TAM? Is it impact? What's the? Yeah. So I think when I think about it, I'm I'm in in the energy transition. I think it's really important to note we're not going backwards. Yeah. Like we are finding ways to create energy more effectively at a lower cost. We are finding ways to, to transport people and things around the world at lower cost and higher valued speed. And we're finding ways to communicate faster. Like that is the basis of, of industrial growth. That is the story of massive, massive value creation over the last 150 years since the industrial revolution. This is the next iteration of that. And the opportunity on the end for all these companies is enormous. Great point. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is, 
that gets to some of the broader conversation. Right. I think that is really how we should be talking about I what is happening. I totally agree with you. Um, and for us, when I'm making an investment, yeah, I'm looking at that. Like, how enabling are they of that future, of uh -huh. that massive opportunity for just to create a better world for us all to live in? Um, and TAM is one way to look at it, for sure. Um, I think TAM is probably overused in the industry because okay. the industry is so large, right? I mean – you know, a lot of our companies have a trillion dollar plus TAM. Yeah. And that's great because uh, it gives them a lot of flexibility and approach to the market. And um, But I think how you actually get into the market is uh -huh. the challenge. Uh -huh. And that's the thing that I look at. It's right. like, how easy is adoption? Who do you need to work with to get adopted first? Uh -huh. And then second, third, up to, you know, to really become commercial. Yep. And, and so... You at the engine have views on various sectors. Then you talked about picking people, right? Yep. You've got to find founders that, yep. that can really address that. Um, so talk to us about those subsectors that you're most excited about yep. from an energy transition perspective. Yeah. So, so I think we, we at the engine, um, we try to follow the scientific community and where the work is going. Okay. Um, and so where is innovation happening fastest? Um, there's a lot right now going on because of AI and increased predictive analytics, better predictive analytics around material discovery. Um, and so we have a handful of investments there. Um, there's, and that's, that's really, actually, I, th I would say across the board, all of our companies are using simulation um, and kind of computational models to rapidly down, um, down, get down the risk curve on technology. They're doing digital experience exactly, experiments right. instead of and so literal experiments. You, and so that actually buys down the capital intensity of what's going on uh -huh. because so one, one of our companies, CFS, Commonwealth Fusion Systems, you mentioned Cold Fusion earlier. Um, Commonwealth Fusion Systems uh, last tw 2021 raised, you know, a $1.8 billion financing. Uh, it's the second largest private round in the history of venture capital. The wow. Uber's Series E was a little bigger. Um, this was a, this company's Series B. But what they had to do was they had to demonstrate their first thing they did was that they modeled out their reactor in simulation and said, um, you know, magnet technology has improved so much over the last 20 years. If we implement these new magnets, high temperature superconducting magnets, um, we can create a net positive reaction. That all happened in simulation. Wow. And so what they then had to do was show that they could make the magnet. And so their first round, they made the magnet. And it, it, it was true to the model that they created, and they proved that, that, was, that they could do that. And that was the value inflection. They didn't have to make two or three or four or five or ten or whatever. They made one. Uh -huh. um, now they have to string them together and make the system and show that, it's gonna, that it confirms to the model as well. So like right. that really increases the pace of experimentation for us doing the batteries at my old startup. I mean, we were trying to test tens and twenties of battery of cells, you know, and um, scaling that up would have been great because you just need more shots on gold to get the batteries to work. And um, the simulation capability now is just so much better than mm -hmm. it was 10, 10 years mm -hmm. ago. And so that would buy, it buys down that cost early. Yeah. Let, let me, I w you, you mentioned some numbers around Commonwealth Fusion. And so uh, the Series B was a billion eight. Okay. What was, when you guys invested, what was the size of the round when you invested? Yeah, so the first round of the company was over $100 million. Okay. However, so such a big idea. However. You had to have so much money. Yes. But go ahead. The, the, so what was 
one, their relationship with MIT is, is unique and because of the size of, of that and what is happening there. Um, but in order for in order for the founders to actually negotiate with MIT on the license and everything, they had to actually be employed by the company. Okay. Um, and so the engine was set up to help help that. And so this is before the race. Um, Got it. And so Bob came off off campus to, to do that. But um, so yeah, the first round for CFS was 100 million. Yeah. So I I, I just highlight sometimes that wouldn't be a normal check for not for, for us. a startup company. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and, and sometimes these things are so big that it, it takes it becomes unusual. But I to me. What the billion eight says is, wow, you, if you're successful, yeah. it can be really successful. And that gets, so, so one, I, I want to just note, you know, any, the Italian, E and I, E and yeah. I, um, led that series A, like okay. they were, they put the most money into that company. Um, and which I think speaks to the partnerships that need to be developed uh-huh. around worldwide. all these companies worldwide to, to, um, for them to scale. The second thing to note there is the, um, yeah, it gets back to this Instagram thing, which was yeah they had no they had market risk, no technology risk. CFS, if you know if you can make heat and you can make electricity, we know how to sell that. Uh-huh. Uh, and so they actually, I would argue, have very little market risk. Yes, uh, and so, a huge amount of technology and, and risk. technology risk. So they're on the other side of that, right. um, which I think is is an interesting yep. comparison okay. to what's going on. Okay, so your most interesting subsectors. Subsectors, in the energy yes. Transition. So. Um, I think now uh, we've invested in, in transmission. I mentioned that, and we've best invested in carbon capture um, and chemical synthesis in a number of different ways and new generation. I think uh, looking forward, things that I am interested in uh, I, around mining. So I think some of the materials, the metals, the minerals for for electrification in particular are, uh, you know, copper. The for example, um, which is really important, has basically ore grade has fallen by 75% and from 2% to 0.5%. And that just means it's a really energy intense process, very expensive, and we need a lot of copper for the right. energy transition. So I'm interested there. Um, carbon utilization uh, is another When you area. say interested in that, you mean you're interested in finding alternatives to that? Yeah, so yeah. ways to more efficiently extract metals and minerals. Okay. Um, and process. So here's the, the other element I think dimension that is important to talk about is national competitiveness. You're so right. even for stuff that we extract here in the U.S., we ship it to China for processing, and then they ship it back. And it's, it, that is is uh, yeah. So that doesn't make a lot of sense um, for an economy that wants to be a we little bit more. Depend- we could we could do a whole podcast on that on issue, that. You could. but keep going. Yes. So um, national competitiveness. We'll go to Boston. Yeah. We'll go to Boston for that. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that national competitiveness angle is really important um, on the minerals and mineral side. So minerals processing is another area. Uh-huh. Um, so, And we actually have an investment in Lilac Solutions, which is a lithium extraction technology and, um, yeah, based in the Bay Area. Um, but I think the broader set of minerals and metals is, is important. Uh-huh. So that's one area. Carbon utilization is, I think, another one. Um, and it's one where, you know, we're going to be – I think we will be doing a lot of carbon capture. Um whether it's point source capture, or direct air capture, it's going to happen. Um, I I think the question is going to be, what do we do with the carbon dioxide, the gas? Um, and yes, there are going to be places where we can sequester it, uh, but it's not going to be everywhere. And uh, it's going to be very costly to transport. 
uh-huh. and to build out a set of infrastructure around CO2. We have some here down in the, in, in Texas, um, but you know uh, there's a lot of point there's a lot of point sources elsewhere in the country, um, uh-huh. and I just it's the infrastructure build out for that is going to be intense. So finding ways to leverage CO2, uh-huh. uh, decompose it into CO, upcycle it into renewable gas, upcycle it into methanol. Um, for chemical synthesis, I think that is an area I'm, I'm particularly interested in. There's a lot of different pathways uh, to doing that. Um, so we're, we're looking at that as well. Mm-hmm. And when, when you think about, so if we step back to the big concept of energy transition, clearly you're bought in that we got to do net zero. We got to find ways to decarbonize. And when, when you think about how you're deploying capital, do you how do you marry that with making money so there there's the doing good and there's making money and and so do you have to sacrifice one to get the other yeah i don't think so i don't think so and part of that is because of, of what i was saying before which is we are now we are we are innovating into massive opportunity it's got to be better technology it's got to be better solutions that make lives easier and um, for everybody and in across lots of dimensions and allow us to continue to grow um, and allow for continued development in, across the world. Um, so that is that is a precondition, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what I see is that there's a lot of technology pathways allow, that will allow us to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't think of them as separate. Okay. Um, I think that these are enormous opportunities for these companies to get in and yeah. to scale. And, and do your... Do the people that give you money to invest, are they, are they return driven or are they goal driven? They're return driven. Okay. Yeah. So, so you're not going to get away. You're not going to have a sustainable business for, yeah. if you don't make money. Correct. So for us, um, yes, there's, we have this, the, I think the grace of a longer time horizon to return that capital. Uh-huh. But what that means is our investments need like the IRR is still going to be the same. Right. And so if we are investing in something that's going to take that long time, it better be massive. Right. And so that is something that we think about with every single investment we make. Okay. What role does passion play in this? I mean, and I don't mean to to break it down to that, but I mean, I feel like there has to be in any good business with this type of mission, um, you know, your employee early on, right. One of the founders there, like there has to be a passion with, with you guys in this. I mean, do you, what role does that yeah. play for you? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't think you do this if you don't believe in the power of innovation to change the world. Mm-hmm. And if there's anybody out there that doesn't believe in the power of innovation to change the world, they haven't read the last 150 years of history. And so I think for us, that is what drives us. Um, and the ability to think outside of a quarterly, you know, return, um, which most of the economy has to think about mm-hmm. um, in public markets. They've got to do that, and I get it. But the ability to think longer term actually gives you a, a freedom to operate and, um, I think, make investments that uh, can change the world. Yeah. And, and um, so you've got a 20-year life fund. It's give 12, or, it's give 12 or or two, three-year extensions. Okay. Yeah. So what does that mean uh, if I – because you're going to invest over a period of time and, and there's going to be an average length of investment for you in, in a given portfolio company. But um, how does that compound? Are, you are looking for a 5X or something like that in your in your aggregate portfolio. I'm thinking about yeah, so in venture, 20% rate of returns yeah, compounded yeah. over a decade. Right. So I think in venture, you know, the top quartile return is like 4X. Okay. Right. And we want to be in the top quartile. So... 
how do you get there? Every investment works. One out of 10 investments work. Yeah. How do so you think about the portfolio yeah. composition? Yeah. So the venture model historically yeah. is, is that you have a couple, a few outlier winners yeah. and um, many, many zeros. Okay. Right. Um, this, I, I'm going to, this is historic. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, many zeros. Um, and then maybe some on the edge, right? Um, one to two X. So, but those outlier winners are massive, outliers. massive outliers. Yeah. 50 know. baggers. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and so that's the venture model. Uh-huh. I think that, that return profile, which is the power law, um, works really well with software. Okay. Right, because um, the pace of experimentation, you get to fast failure, uh-huh. um, and fast failure is really important in that world because you want to. What you want to do is you make your initial investments, and then you want to pile into the winners. Yep. Right, that's how you get to the the, the big returns. Um, and in f- software, you get a lot of fast failure. Good, like you can do that. It's easier. In this space, fast failure is not often common. Uh-huh. Right, because you get you've got a lot of um, companies that are that take multiple rounds to get just to get into market uh-huh. and get a market signal, and so you've got to change the way that you think about that a little bit. Um, I think the good thing is for us, you know, so much of execution risk is about the team, and so we can we get to we get to work with the teams very closely and have a sense for their ability to innovate into those into those later rounds, uh-huh. um, and I, that's how we mitigate that that concern. Um, I think on. Uh, which is, I think, a concern for the model. I think on the positive side for the model is because these are these are companies rooted in real assets and IP, the downside risk is limited as well. Uh-huh. So you have fewer zeros, right? And so that there's there's a it is it is the venture model, um, but I think that we're going to see in time as the data comes in that the return profiles are slightly different. You're going to have outlier winners. Um, you're probably going to have more on the margin. Um, and then fewer zeros. Mm-hmm. And does does the current, a, as as we're taping this, the Silicon Valley Bank situation is now two or three weeks old. Yeah. Um, tell us, tell us how you see. You know that does it does it matter? Is it going to squash um, innovation or not? I don't think it's going to squash innovation. I think that it uh, it does matter. It. Silicon Valley Bank was a really good partner for startups. Uh-huh. Um, they kind of understood the startup business and um, were providing products that were helpful to startups in in scaling. Um, all of that is is good. Uh, I think fundamentally, it, it's still it's there. There will be other banks that will begin to offer those services. So uh-huh. we're in a little bit of a uh, like uh, credit for startups kind of yep. tight right now, um, which is all fine. Uh, you know the companies are in, in decent shape with the actions of the Fed and, and the Treasury. So um, the imminent crisis is gone. I think there's a real opportunity for other banks to come in and decide they want to work with startups. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so that, I think, we'll wait and see what that is. But ultimately, um, I think th- it, was an, it, was, it was a nerve-wracking few days, but um, I think the because um, companies were worried about making payroll and, and right. keeping people on staff. Um, but I think ultimately the solutions were, were, were good. You're, you're from Boston. We're from Houston. Um, yes. But you yeah. – <laughs> Hard stop. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Correct. Go south. Um, okay. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about what being 
because you've made investments in, in, in Houston-based companies. Um, so give us the contrast between Coastal and Houston. Yeah. Your comment earlier was the ecosystem <laughs> between the yeah. two. Yeah. And needing to build a bridge. Um, and I think that's important. Uh, my, so in, in Boston, in Cambridge, we got a lot of good stuff going on. We, got, we have the highest density of top-tier researchers producing top-tier research uh, in the world. Mm -hmm. I, I, we did some work where, you know, I, I looked across a lot of different fields, synthetic biology, chem, uh, you know, chemical engineering, whatever. And um, if you picked all those fields and you picked the top five researchers globally, one of them is in Boston, in every field. Outstanding. And so that is unique. Um, so we have a density of great innovation and research, and, and, and I think it's amazing. Uh, I think I think Josh that Michael just said we have the smartest yeah. people in the world in Boston. But Dr. Michael did say yeah. that. Doctor, Doctor Mike, <laughs> Doctor Mike weighing in on Boston. Yeah, he I, did say I, that. I'm, okay, hometown pride. I yeah. think we got some smart people. Okay, okay. true. Uh, the, yes. So they're smart people. They're smart people. That's Keep great. Going. And yeah. good ideas yeah. and like roots. I think roots of potentially game-changing opportunity. Mm -hmm. However, <laughs> there's a however. Better there's than always the but. a but. Yeah. Here it is. Okay. Um, what more? I was waiting for more over. You're going to just push it. In oh, I could keep going. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, in, uh, in my time down here, um, what I have had the opportunity to, I think, really appreciate is the workforce, the understanding of scaling, the ability to build stuff at scale that exists here in Houston in the energy industry also unmatched, right? Mm -hmm. um, and... And I think um, we've seen it, I've seen it in, in our companies, the big, biggest challenge is bringing in talent that knows how to do this. Um, and uh, so we do have a company, a couple companies down here, I'll tell you, I think they have an easier job hiring um, uh -huh. for that. Um, I, was it Kay that spoke yesterday? Katie, yeah. Katie, excuse me. And, um, you know, she had a great point on that. She said, you know, all these Massachusetts and Boston guys are like, we have these great ideas and we're going to do this. And she's like, great. Who's going to do it? <laughs> right. You know, and I think exactly. the way she kind of just said that was, you know, we're not going to be able to come up with the project manager solutions and the people that are going to actually execute this stuff. We've got to go build a bridge, to your point, on right. And where is that going to come from? And I think Houston's a great – I mean, Houston has really smart people too, right? I mean, that's – it's problem solvers Really galore. smart people, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration between uh -huh. these two ecosystems, and I think it's really important to, to continue to build that bridge. I agree with you on that as well. Do, um, I hope Houston – I'm sorry, Dan, to cut you there. No. I, I, this is, the, again, back to the, the point of the, the overall goal here is I really hope Houston understands its opportunity here. And, the, and I, I, again, I say oil and gas, but really I'm starting to say energy more and more often. I hope the energy industry realizes that they have a chance to be part of something really big here for the next, you know, however much time we all need energy. 100, 100 which is forever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I, just to put a point on that, I think my experience – I. There are uh, obviously, you know, pejorative tropes. You know, the people in Massachusetts, like they've got a great idea. They're technocentric. They think technology is going to save us all. That's the right. that's it. Down here, it's oh, that's cute. Like we've we've got this figured out. We know what we're doing, um, and that's that doesn't really matter, right? And so they're both pejorative and they're both tropes. And like neither is true. Right. Um, it is really important for them to come together to realize the opportunity. Um, of that collaboration. We, we always tell people, you know, your widget's cool, 
but how does it change someone's life? Tell, right. Let's explain that story properly. Yep. Michael, do you think – where do you think big oil or big utility plays into implementation of the energy transition? Is it going to be – is Exxon and Chevron and BP and E&I, and, uh, are they going to own a lot of this over time or – Nextera or the big yeah. utilities, or is it going to be Teslas, more Teslas popping up, you know, companies that didn't exist that get really big? So I think there's a couple ways to look at this. You know, one, just at the root of your question is like, who wins the energy transition? Will it be new companies? Will it be established companies? And both of those two, I, like there's no theory of change for me in my mind of how we meet our, our climate goals where either one of those two things is true. Like it, 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 the only way it is it, it will work is some combination of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it won't be all, right, of both, but right. it will be some combination of mm-hmm. both. Um, I think that's – so that's the way I think about it. Um, we're actually – if you look at um, – if you look at the life sciences, uh, I think the way that industry has evolved, there are a lot of parallels that would be good to pull. Um, Explain that. So – in, in the 2000s, since the last 20 years or so, the engagement of the corporate world in understanding that they have to compete on innovation mm-hmm. um, has led them to invest early in startups, acquire them. It's a really, I think it's a pretty seamless acquisition market. Um, and then I think those two things together also made the public markets a lot more comfortable taking on different types of risk. Um, so this is the biotech, the biotech, the biotech about, business, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so what you see is, and then part of that is because we have a very understood regulatory pathway: phase one, phase two, phase three. Boom. Public markets usually come in around the phase two. And they'll take on technology risk related to the phase three, but they know exactly what it is, and there's little market risk on the other side. We don't have that in energy yet. Uh, we still don't. It, like every pilot looks different, and how these technologies scale, there's a little bit more diversification maybe on like the technology areas, but ultimately I think the the most important piece was those corporate, the corporate world in, in biotech, like Kendall Square, now the biggest offices in Kendall Square are Bayer and Genentech and you know, they're all around, they're talking to the researchers in academic labs, they're buying those companies earlier, they're investing early, it is really fluid. Um, and we are beginning to see that in energy. I mean, NL, any other other majors have been have opened up shops in in mm. Cambridge, right? And so like they're we're beginning to see that. So I think that I think that that is really good. Um, ultimately, that seems like a big deal I, for those types of companies to be rolling in there for sure. Yeah, for sure. And and so there is this sense that the future will be one on these innovation these innovation areas. And the question is, how far away is that future? Mm-hmm. What what is the what is the sense from the people that have been there for a while when they see those types of companies coming to the area? Um, well, I've been there for about 15 years, mm-hmm. and I think it's great. <laughs> um, that would, I, from yeah. your perspective, I understand I, that, but exactly. just like the general <laughs> uh, sense. So, I mean, it definitely drives up real estate costs. Okay. <laughs> and, and, like, there's, like – Well, no, I mean – For the startups, I mean. Like, yeah. getting lab space in Kettle Square <laughs> right now is almost impossible. No, I, I really mean more of do – is the sense that the energy – so I know how we view energy transition, Right. And I, I'm looking at from a, a Massachusetts standpoint, mm. Boston standpoint, do mm-hmm. they see the energy companies coming there going, great, they're here to help solve this big problem? Or are they like, wait a minute, why is this oil and gas company here? Oh, no, I think it's, it's highly collaborative. Okay. So, so and, and part of that, I mean, I mean I'm going to focus on MIT's 
role in that. So MIT launched the Energy Initiative there, which is that manages all energy research across the university uh, in 2006 or seven. Uh, Ernie Moniz, who went on to be Secretary of Energy, he led it. And, and I think he made a very strategic choice to make sure to engage existing energy okay. companies in that work um, t for funding research. And, and it's a highly collaborative place. Okay. Um, I, that's where I, I started um, and grew up into the space. So like, I, I think a lot of people are exposed to that and uh, very supportive of, of those collaborations. Okay. So you've seen a lot of startups. You're involved in a lot of startups. Um, what's the pearl of wisdom or what do you tell entrepreneurs uh, if they want to be successful, what are two or three characteristics that they really need to develop or, or think about? Yeah, so one, the first thing, and I hope that there are aspiring entrepreneurs out there listening, is like, I don't think there's ever been a better time to start a climate or energy, clean energy startup. Um, the capital is there. There's a lot of interest. Um, and I... I think the time is now to do it, and it is it is a both very potentially lucrative and rewarding experience. The second, I think, and this is more to your question, relates to the importance of building a team, uh -huh. trusting your teammates, leading. It is the success and failure of these companies and this movement as a whole, the energy transition, is going to come down to leadership, mm -hmm. basically exclusively, I'm pretty sure. Um, and the people who are doing it. And um, so for my the, our, our portfolio companies and our CEOs, I think that the ability to lead and the ability to build a team and work on those soft skills is really critical. Um, and everything else is going to be hard, right? You can actually control that. Uh -huh. um, and you can't control everything. Um, so you should be investing in yourself to become that the leader because we need them. Yeah. Um, we need really good leaders out there in the space. I mean, you said hopefully, Dan. He obviously doesn't know how big this podcast is, <laughs> how dominant we are. Yes, hope, hopefully there are entrepreneurs listening. There are. Good. There you go. There are. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Houston. This yes. Is, we're not, we're yes. not here to lose. <laughs> good. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. That's right. What's interesting about your advice is you didn't say – Make sure that the problem you're attacking is big. You, you didn't. You didn't talk about understand your technology. It, it maybe that's inherent in you know. There's good technology to start a business around, but um, it really highlights that it's not enough to be Dr. Mike and smart. It, you've got to have these soft things if you're really going to be successful. And we've got to have successful people to make this difference that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, you need a couple Joshes on the team, is what he's saying. <laughs> Josh, well, we could use a, we could use many Josh. This is many this is Josh's, a job interview for Josh. Yes, <laughs> I'm just saying general, general Josh. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's his last podcast, everyone. He's going to work at the end. Just general Josh. <laughs> you, know, you got you one Doctor Mike, but yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Well, the the energy transition is lucky to have you, Doctor Mike. And I think I'm going to have to tell my team about Doctor Mike. Yeah, right. yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> it kind of has a nice ring to Very it. Very great. <laughs> yeah, they just know you as plain old Mike. That's right. Um, <laughs> I like playing old Mike. Yeah, to be there clear. we go. Um, Hello, Mike. <laughs> Josh, anything else before we lightning round? Uh, this has been enjoyable, and yeah. uh, you know, well, we, thank you guys. We have had um, we do these all the time, and you know, ultimately, what what wins is somebody who and passion. I'm, I'm look, I'm a passionate guy. I care about this stuff. Passion wins the day, and especially on ideas. 
and obviously there's, you know, you have to have something that's tangible, that makes money, that's, you know, that's commercially viable. But at the same time, like there needs to be people that tell the story and tell it well. I think you do a great job with it. Uh, you know, we're going to go into a fun little part here, but I wish you luck. And, yeah, and thank you, if Josh. there's anything we can do, just let us know. And if you're, you're companies that want to be able to get this message out and if there's ideas on this cable, for instance, that, if, you know, if there's anything we can do on that, like that's a cool idea. I'd love to be able to follow up with the audience later on if there's something there that can yeah. – we can transfer that information later, but just, you know, the more that a passionate person can tell a good story in this type of um, mission, I guess is the best way to say it. So well, I appreciate it. I appreciate the work that you guys are doing to do exactly that. Well, you're not uh, done here. I'm just letting you know. Oh, great. You're, I thought, okay. <laughs> no, I just, I just like the, I enjoy the, the interview yeah. there. All that, all that praise could evaporate for wrong answers right. toward the bottom of this lightning okay. round. And there are okay. wrong Just answers. So you know, yeah. There are. Okay, yeah. good to know. Yeah. Yes. So the, the rules on the lightning round, Mike, are, Michael, Dr. Mike, are um, – you don't get to explain. It's just short answer. You know, one word answers. Yes, no. Oh, these a, are my favorites. B. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> I don't so. need to explain anything. It's great. Right. right. Everybody screws up. And I'm right. Okay. Right. So Josh, lead the way. All right. Here we go. You ready? Yes. Nuclear or wind and solar? Nuclear. Red Sox or the Celtics? Celtics. Oh man, that's easy. Cash or crypto? Cash. The S and P 500 uh, for 2023 from here. Are you bullish or bearish? Flat. Flat. Okay, neither. My man's killing the game. Cybertruck or uh, Ford F-150? Ford F-150. Wait, the electric Ford F-150. Okay, you answered the second question, which was F-150 gasoline or F-150 lightning? Lightning. Well, then what's on the Cybertruck or the Ford F-150? Probably still Ford F-150. Okay. Okay. Uh, Pre-revenue or post-revenue? Pre-revenue. Does the Ukraine conflict last through the remainder of the year into 2024? Sadly, I think it does. Steak or pasta? Steak. I'm in Houston. Come on. Yeah. Texas. I know my audience. Uh, sorry. Ted Lasso or Ozark? Ted Lasso. Work uh, from the office or work from home? The office. Yes. I agree with that. Mm. Uh, do you think we're going to see another IRA type bill in the next two or three years? I don't think we have to. I think we got enough got a lot of work to do on this one so no no (laughs) (laughs) sorry sorry um yukon or miami in the final four gotta go with jim laranega miami okay i'm gonna do the i'm gonna do two at the end here textbook or cookbook textbook and come on (laughs) wait wait real quick are you a good cook uh i i survive I, I can, where I where can, does the question, the textbook or cookbook, come from? What's that? I just made it up. I oh, thought it was interesting. On the fly. I, like yeah, it. I, mean, I mean, I feel like that was baked for me. <laughs> yeah. No pun intended. Yeah, um, there we go. Um, final question. Will the Houston Texans make the Super Bowl in the next decade? Decade? No. <laughs> oh. Sorry. Sorry, Sorry, everybody. <laughs> Oh, this is just such a funny yes. thing to go through every week. It, it is. It is. <laughs> I, look, I grew up in Washington, and I and I came to D.C. and I came, you know, I was uh, it was a, I was after the Joe Gibbs like wins oh, yeah. the Super Bowl, and so I lived through probably I mean forty quarterbacks. Just an ugly period of time for any franchise. So I, you know, I feel your pain. Yeah, I'm yeah, a Cowboys you, fan. You, you it's it. been rough for us as well. That's right. For a period. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> your your team's about to be sold though. It is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think uh, a lot of excitement. A yeah, lot of excitement around imagine. that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. a lot of excitement around that. So 
Michael Carney, I hope you'll come back and join us in a couple years and update us on, on what's been happening at the engine. Uh, we find you at www.engine.xyz. Is that correct? With a dot in between the www and engine. But oh, yes. Got it. www.engine.xyz. Fabulous. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Guys, thanks Best for having us. This yeah. is fun. Did great. Thank you. Thanks. Good job.